another installment of Grizzly Bear Blues Live. I am your host, Joe Mullinax. Thank you so much for joining us wherever you're taking in the podcast via Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, over at grizzlybearblues.com. However you may be listening, thank you for joining me. Again, I am your host, Joe Mullinax. I am the site manager of grizzlybearblues.com, the SB Nation Memphis Grizzlies team blog and I'm so excited for this episode we're focusing almost exclusively on the draft and it's going to be fun we're going to have a pretty cool guest on the show he he does a tremendous job covering the NBA draft for the uh, step back excuse me he does a great job covering for the step back uh, he, you may know him on Twitter as Illegal Screens. I'll expose his official name uh, in the next segment. Excited to have him on, and he does a great job kind of breaking down my big board. I give my top 14 lottery guys in this podcast. He t- talks about some guys who should be there, who shouldn't be there. He weighs in on the John ja Morant versus R.J. Barrett debate. All that fun stuff. It's a really great segment, and we will get to it here momentarily. Ways to get in touch with the podcast. You can follow me on Twitter, at Joe Molinax. You can follow GBB on Twitter, grizzlybearblues.com, at SBN Grizzlies. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter, at GBB Live. Before we get to the draft, however, and again, it's a tremendous segment. Can't wait to share it with you. I do want to discuss the coaching search, because I think that's been something that folks have started to get impatient with, and I can't stress to you enough, maintain that patience because this is the exact opposite of what they've done in the past. That is a positive thing. It's good to see them being more methodical. I know that it would probably be (laughs) better to have a coach than not, but at the same time, if you rush into a decision based on the sake of ease, that's how you wind up with J.B. Bickerstaff, someone who really didn't have a ton of physical evidence that he was an actual good head coach becoming your head coach you don't want that so they're taking advantage of this opportunity to network hopefully uh, they're gathering information it sounds like which is tremendous hopefully both on the value of the job the worth of the Memphis Grizzlies and the eyes of valued assistants and other coaches across the country and the world and that's not an opportunity you should get very often if we're being honest with each other you don't want to hire seven coaches in 11 years or whatever the statistic might be you don't want that You want to have stability at that position, and while Memphis has not invested financially in the way that they should have in the past, it's still something that you can at least invest time in. And there's only 30 NBA jobs in the entire world. Uh, An assistant coach, a former NBA head coach, somebody in college, somebody's going to want the gig. And I think that they undervalued that last year, or they used it as a piss-poor excuse to not fully engage other candidates. This time around, they're doing that. I hope by the draft there's a new head coach in Memphis. I do believe they're on pace for that as we record this podcast. We're about two weeks away from the NBA draft in Memphis. So it's getting close to to time to maybe be a little bit confused, a little bit concerned. But at the same time, we're not all the way there yet. So it's, it's one of those situations that you can certainly be optimistic for what is coming from the Grizzlies front office. I'm optimistic. But there's a lot of moving pieces, and I wrote about that for the blog this week uh, called the or Walking the Memphis Tightrope. There's a lot of moving sequences here. The Mike Conley trade kind of connects with the Jonas Valanciunas trade, but it doesn't. The Valanciunas opt-in or opt-out may connect to the coaching job, but should it? 
obviously free agency has a, a bit of a toll on all of this. If somehow you trade Mike Conley for a limited financial return and Valanciunas opts out, all of a sudden you have a max contract slot or close to a max contract slot. What do you do with that money? It, it's really kind of a, a wait and see, and it's almost like it's all going to hit us pretty quickly, like boom, boom, boom. They're all going to happen bit by bit by bit, piece by piece by piece, and really kind of be impactful in that way. So uh, it's it's been a bit of a lull, but I anticipate these next two weeks being intense for the Memphis Grizzlies, and hopefully you're making grizzlybearblues.com one of your places to check out Grizzlies content, and then, of course, hopefully you're checking out and listening to not just GBB Live, but also the Core 4 podcast here on the GBB Podcast Network. At this point, I do want to shout out our watch party. Hopefully, you'll be attending the watch party that we are throwing with I Love Memphis and 92.9 FM ESPN in Memphis. Really excited to be there for this event. I will actually be in the city for the draft. It's going to be a lot of fun. Lots of different coverage things being planned, and it's going to be a blast. So hopefully, you are making your plans to join us at the Bluff Memphis. We're throwing it. Jason and John from 92.9 FM ESPN Memphis are going to be there. Holly Whitfield from the I Love Memphis blog. Lots of GB beers, different site, or site writers and managers and all sorts of different folks are going to be in attendance. I know Holly's going to be giving away glasses to the first 100 folks that come to the party. We're going to have giveaways as well. They're going to be announced as we get more details. Of course, you can watch the draft on the Bluff's many great TVs. Come out, check out the drama, follow the Grizzlies as they embark on the wild adventure of having the number two pick overall in this draft, likely going to be connected to John Morant. Um, it's going to be a really good time. So, again, starting at 7 o'clock Central at the Bluff Memphis, come out to be a part of the watch party with Grizzly Bear Blues and I Love Memphis and Jason and John and the whole 92.9 FM ESPN crew. When we come back, we'll be kicking right into draft coverage gear at Illegal Screens on Twitter. His identity will be exposed. I'll give you a hint. His first name starts with a T. Uh, he does an awesome job with the step back doing their NBA draft coverage. So we had a great conversation about my big board, where John Morant should be, how Brandon Clark fits into things, all these different names. It's definitely an awesome segment. Well worth your time. Don't go anywhere. Coming back with Grizzly Bear Blues Live NBA draft coverage. Welcome back to Grizzly Bear Blues Live. I am your host, Joe Monax, and I'm excited right now to be joined by a real great follow on Twitter, especially this time of year. All times of year, he's a terrific follow. But right now, especially with the NBA draft on the horizon, he's at Illegal Screens on Twitter. And I can't recommend enough his content that he puts out over at the step back. His name is Trevor Magnotti. Trevor, thank you so much for joining us. Also, again, if you're on NBA Twitter, you probably know him better as at Illegal Screens. That's a pretty tremendous Twitter handle, Trevor. Yeah, you know, I, I picked it because it represents my one single biggest skill on a basketball court. So <laughs> are you overly aggressive or are you a moving screen guy? Like what is your, uh, what is your strength in that, on that, in that area? Excuse me. I'm most effective, most effective at kind of hitting the, like making contact and moving into the role, into the, into the lane at the same time um, and giving you a good elbow on the way for your pleasure. I like that. The physicality, I think, is important. That's something that's leaving the game slowly but surely. So I can always appreciate somebody who who brings the physicality to what I see as a contact sport in basketball. So we're going to dive right in here. 
And I'm excited to have you on the show. I think you do a great job with your, like I said, all your stuff you do over at the step back. Uh, I just like you as a Twitter follow. I think you have some good ideas. I'm going to start right at the top. I'm formulating my big board because as a Grizzlies fan, I've already kind of got my top two. I think Zion Williamson is a pretty clear number one for everybody. And then John Morant, Mm -hmm. it would appear, is becoming a more concrete number two. I saw a little bit more debate right when the lottery happened. And I I like R.J. Barrett a lot. He's probably my number three. But it seems like lots of folks have settled on John Morant at number two, which is fine with Memphis because that's who the Grizzlies want to take. And that's probably who the Grizzlies should take. So as I put together my big board here, I'm just going to go guy by guy, and I want you to give me what you like about them, what you're kind of concerned about. We'll go all the way down through the lottery because I'm anticipating the Grizzlies trading Mike Conley before the NBA draft or on draft night, and that will likely mean that they'll get a pick somewhere, you know, anywhere from seven or maybe six because the Phoenix Suns are interested in a veteran point guard, and Conley's the best one on the market. Uh Anywhere from six on, Memphis could have another pick in this lottery, potentially. So the Grizzlies do need to start paying a little more attention to those folks later on down in the lottery. Maybe they trade for future picks. They're not in love with the rest of this draft, like most folks would would, uh, kind of agree with. But I think as folks like you do a deeper dive into some of these prospects, maybe you find things that a team like Memphis could like at, say, number seven with Chicago, number 11 to Minnesota, or even later on down the road. Uh, with the Miami Heat towards the end of the lottery. So let's jump right in with Zion. And I think we don't need to talk a ton about him because he's going to be a Pelican, but he's not, he's easily the most exciting prospect in a long time. And I do think he's one of the more sure things in air quotes since Anthony Davis. What is something about Zion Williamson that concerns you in terms of his development as an NBA player? I think the biggest thing that it's a concern, people will point to his shooting being an issue and people will point to kind of his frame being a potential issue, but I'm not really sold that either of those are. I think that there's definitely a chance that he's going to add a three point shot. And even if it doesn't happen within the next couple of years, I think it's going to be down the line for him. I mean, he's going to be a power forward and maybe playing some small forward for most of his NBA career. He's going to need to be able to shoot off the catch. And I think that he's going to put in the work there. And I also don't really have big concerns about his frame. His athleticism overcomes so much. And I, I don't think that there's a huge value to kind of the injury risk argument um, because we've seen guys maybe not at his athletic athletic um, level before, but definitely at his frame type, not really have injury issues um, so much. So really, I think the big thing that separates Zion from being the player that everybody wants him to be is his ball handling. I think that he is a little bit limited on on that end. He improved as the season went along and in particular had one game against Virginia. If you want to go back and watch that one, that is the Zion masterclass of what he's going to be at the NBA level as, as a primary initiator. Um, that's the big thing, though, that I think he needs to continue to work on, just diversifying the moves that he goes to, getting a little bit more shake, and then also kind of using his dribble to play himself open instead of just kind of charging right into guys. I think that that's where he's probably going to be the most limited right away for the for the Pelicans and where he really is going to need to be experiencing a lot of growth to become the type of player that we all think he can be. 
He's shown flashes of it. I'm a UVA basketball fan. Thanks for bringing up uh, the fact that the Dukies beat up on my Cavaliers a couple of times. Uh, it, it ended well for UVA, but I, I do think that Zion is special in that way. He has areas where he needs to improve, but I think he's shown flashes, whether it's his three-point shooting, whether it's his facilitation, a, a lot of different things that he's shown the capacity to do it. He's just not consistently there, and for somebody who's going to be 19 years old his entire rookie season, unless they make the NBA Finals, which they're not, um, or most likely not going to, uh, a team that's pretty clearly going into a rebuild, likely to trade Anthony Davis and, and get a pretty good return for him, I think Zion's going to be a great guy to kind of lead that charge. Next on my big board, I have Ja Morant, and I am terrified of the knee surgery because as a Memphis Grizzlies person, I think anybody, uh, anytime you see something with knees, you, you start to go into shock. Uh, Chandler Parsons has done that to us, but I do believe it when they say it's minor. And I do think that John Morant is going to be a pretty awesome NBA player. I think he's going to be an awesome passer right off the jump. Maybe he has to adapt to the speed of the game. As a defender, I could see him struggling with his shot at times in his rookie year, but I think he's going to be a pretty elite facilitator from day one, and I think that's going to be his strength right away. What what do you kind of see as John Morant's biggest positive in his game right now? We talked about where Zion needs to improve. What should Grizzlies fans be most excited about with their likely selection of John Morant at the draft on June 20th? Well, I am probably one of the bigger jaw skeptics on uh, on Twitter because I knew that I, that's why I made you say something nice about him. Yeah, exa- exactly. Um, so I, it, I think that the, the playmaking, especially in the open court is what I draws me to Morant being a success. He is going to be a guy who is going to excel in open court situations, his ability to see the floor in the, in the open court and transition and be able to make just brilliant cross court passes. He is really exciting and I think that he is really good at threading the needle um makes a lot of really tough passes in the pick and roll in the half court I just think his touch on passes is probably up there with among the best in the class and I think that that's something that is really going to bring a lot of value for him right away because I'm a little bit skeptical that the scoring game is going to translate right away. And I think that he is really going to have to learn to play kind of as a traditional point guard type before he really gets that scoring game going that he had at Murray state, because I just do not really think that that's going to translate hundred percent right away. The speed of the game is definitely going to jump on him, perhaps even faster than it would a RJ Barrett, who we'll talk more about here in a moment because of the fact that R.J. Barrett played in the toughest conference in the country, same with Zion, obviously, as uh, teammates at Duke. And Ja has been in a place where he doesn't have to do that as much. The numbers he puts up, maybe he wouldn't be able to do at an ACC school, a Big Ten school. How much do you play into the idea in the case of a Memphis? If you're debating Ja versus R.J. Barrett or whoever you have, number three on your board, I'm going to ask you that here in a moment. Uh But for me, it's R.J. Barrett. And if you're debating R.J. Barrett, who all he did was set records at Duke for scoring and not be as good as Zion Williamson, um, when you're R.J. Barrett and you're Memphis and you hear rumors and rumblings about him not wanting to play in Memphis, obviously he 
uh, declined a workout invite from the Grizzlies. That doesn't necessarily mean anything. Jaron Jackson Jr. also declined an invite, and, and that's worked out well for all parties involved. Uh, Barrett just doesn't seem like a fit personality-wise, maybe even in terms of makeup that John Morant is. Barrett's been at the head of the class for a vast majority of his basketball career, while Ja Morant has a very Memphis story in terms of being gritty, coming up from nobody paying attention to him, to being the presumptive number two pick in this draft. That is a Memphis story, the underdog. How much, if you're evaluating prospects, do you weigh that when it comes to, yeah, R.J. Barrett might be closer than folks care to admit, or whoever your number three is, but Jod just fits Memphis better. Like, does that matter to you? Or if it was a different team at number two, do you think they might explore somebody that isn't John Morant outside of the obvious, oh, we already have a young point guard like the Kings or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the reason that Morant is up at number two is precisely because he's such an ideal fit to succeed on this Grizzlies team. I think it's, I think it's more that the Grizzlies are a great fit for him personally. Um, I think if you saw a lot of other teams at the, at the number two spot, RJ Barrett would be the clear number two guy. Um, The thing that makes him such a great kind of match with Memphis is having already the rim protector type, who's also going to be a good screen setter is going to be able to flare the three point line and command, a lot of attention in Jaron Jackson Jr., ideal pick-and-roll weapon for Morant right away, um, and on both ends, honestly, because he's going to be able to cover up for a lot of his mistakes. And you have a veteran point guard in Mike Conley who, even if they are looking to trade Conley, which I would have to assume that they are if they take Morant, having Conley on the team for at least the first half of the season may actually be of good value for Morant because he's there. He can help the tr- with the transition. He can help uh, Morant learn the game. And more importantly, he's there to command a lot of the minutes and take over a lot of what we commonly see with rookie point guards who are built on athleticism like John Morant, where the first half of their rookie year, that type of player usually is like worst player in the NBA, bad. And it takes a while for that adjustment to go. We saw that with Dennis Smith. Um, we've seen that with De'Aaron Fox. We saw it even with Trey Young a little bit last year. And I think that that's kind of what Moran is headed towards. If he plays a lot of minutes, he's going to really have to adjust to the speed of the game and the demands of the game. Um, so I think that having Conley around could be valuable for them. But I think when you look at the comparison between Moran and, and Barrett, I definitely think you do have to kind of weigh – the commit the commitment of Barrett to this team I mean we see guys like this come all the time where they want to play in the big market they they are trying to steer themselves or they have a camp that's trying to steer them into a certain situation in the draft we saw it with Michael Porter Jr we saw it famously with Jabari Parker who had the quote I'm excited to play for the Bucks because it's close to Chicago where he actually wanted to play and you know, that's a little bit of a red flag if you're a team like Memphis, where you're not only having to look at, you know, restricted free agency, this player may be looking to get out. You also have to worry about, is he going to be receptive to trying to learn from your coaching staff and being a part of your culture? Um, so I definitely think in that case, you're right. Morant is a much better fit than Barrett because there's a higher likelihood that he's going to buy in and he's a better fit for this team, and this team is a better fit for him, honestly. 
And in the absence of grit and grind, there hasn't been an identity in Memphis. The Grizzlies are trying to figure out what the heck they are moving forward. I like the John Morant pick for all the reasons you outlined, but also because he can help establish that identity. It's not even necessarily about buying in. It's about him establishing what needs to be bought into. And I think he is more capable of that because he'll be more intertwined with what Memphis is about as a community than perhaps an R.J. Barrett. We're chatting with Trevor Magnotti at Illegal Screens on Twitter. Does an awesome job covering the NBA draft for the step back. Make sure you're following him again at Illegal Screens. I have R.J. Barrett at number three, and I think it's pretty clear to me that he's the number three guy. I know some folks like Jared Culver, and we'll talk more about him in a moment. But like I said, R.J. Barrett hasn't really done anything to dispute why people had him as the number one presumptive pick in this draft going into the college basketball season. He hasn't lost that job. Zion Williamson has won it. And I, to me, if you like Ja Morant better, like Memphians do, and I, I tend to like Ja better as well, I think you can make that argument logically. To me, you can certainly make a logical argument for R.J. Barrett being that second best prospect as well. The New York Knicks have to be licking their chops that he's sitting there at three, whether it's to just take him and have him on their roster or as a potential trade for Anthony Davis with the Pelicans. Uh, That would be pretty valuable to have RJ and Zion together in New Orleans. That would be fascinating to see kind of play out if that's how it worked. Uh, I get crucified in Memphis for liking RJ Barrett. People crush me. They say John Morant is better and it's not even close. I think Memphians like the highlight plays that Morant can make. Barrett's not necessarily that type of player. He just gets buckets. I don't think he is James Harden in terms of a future Hall of Fame wing, per se. He probably has that ceiling, uh, but it would take a lot for him to get there. But he's not flashy like Harden, or he's not flashy in a similar way that Harden's not necessarily flashy in terms of his game. He just scores, and he is able to do that in so many different ways. I like R.J. Barrett a lot. Am I right to like R.J. Barrett a lot? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I mean, he's my number two guy on on my board. I have him um, definitely a tier below Zion, but I, you know, he kind of leads my second tier because I think he just has such an established scoring repertoire, and I think that he's going to be able to translate into being a guy that may not be your number one scorer, may not be like the star for your team, but is going to be kind of like that that solid rock offensively that you can rely on to dictate pace and tempo and the way that the offense flows. And I think that that's important. I think that he's a guy that is going to be able to carry a pretty good shot volume with pretty good efficiency. He's going to be a pretty decent playmaker, even though that was a little bit of a struggle for him at times at Duke. I think that he just has kind of that all-around scoring game that is going to allow him to be the type of guy who maybe can play off of other stars. Um, you know, if Jaron Jackson Jr. is truly the guy in Memphis, let's say, and he develops into like a into like a Blake Griffin type in terms of his ability to carry an offensive load, then RJ is the perfect guy to complement him where he can kind of take over the secondary playmaking and initiation of the offense and also carry the bench units, which is a huge value for NBA teams. They need guys who can kind of carry the load when their bench guys come in and make sure that their offense doesn't die. Um, So I think that that's a huge value that he brings that nobody else really in this class is going to be able to. And what I like about John Moran, I also like about RJ Barrett. To me, moving forward, I see Jaron Jackson Jr. 
being the type of player that makes everybody around him better, especially on the defensive end. And you can pair Jaron in this draft, since this number two pick has fallen into your lap, with somebody who can do the same thing on the offensive end. And if John Morant or R.J. Barrett become better defenders as time goes on, terrific. If Jaron Jackson Jr. becomes a better offensive player than he already is, which he's already better than I thought he would be on that end, if he continues to develop his game, cool. But you'd have a cornerstone defensively in Jaron. You'd have a cornerstone offensively in Jaw or R.J., And I think the main argument for RJ is he has displayed those skills at this point to a higher degree than Jaw has as a score. I think Morant is clearly a better facilitator, but Morant has some things to do shooting wise that Barrett doesn't necessarily have. So that that to me is where I kind of draw that line between the two. I still think Jaw is the better fit, and that's why I would take him. But it's good to hear that you also like RJ. I might surprise you with my number four. And my number four is not Jarrett Culver. It's not even DeAndre Hunter as a UVA uh, big fan. It's not DeAndre Hunter. I've got Brandon Clark number four on my board. And the main reason for that is I love his athleticism. I love his motor. I love the fact that he's one of those combo forwards that can defend almost every position. He's unswitchable, essentially. You can't put him in a bad defensive place. And I think he has an offensive game that can mature enough, even though he's at a higher age among many others in this draft class, I think he's somebody that can develop his game fast enough that he can contribute at a very high level relatively early on and still add levels to his game. So while he's definitely one of those high floor, maybe lower ceiling types, I think his ceiling is higher than others because he still has room for growth especially with this perimeter offensive game. So I have Brandon Clark number four, and maybe you think I'm crazy for that, but I really liked watching him at Gonzaga, and I think that he's going to have a pretty darn good NBA career. Yeah, I, I think that he is definitely in, in that tier of play, player. There's definitely an argument that you can say that he's should be like one of the top five values in this class because he's going to be so versatile on both ends of the floor that – he's going to be able to contribute in a lot of different team contexts. And the team that takes him is going to get a player that at the floor is going to get a really interesting guy that is able to kind of mix things up and vary the way that they're able to structure their rotation. And at the ceiling is probably going to get like a productive rim protector who also has a little bit of a perimeter oriented game. And that's an, that's an extremely valuable player. Um, I have him at six just because I think that he doesn't have as much upside as the two, as the three guys that I have above him, um, who who will continue to talk about, but, um, I think, I think you're definitely right that he has a lot more upside than he's getting credit for because of his athleticism and because of the potential growth that he's going to have as a shooter. If you go back and you watch tape of Brandon Clark at San Jose state, he was without a doubt the worst shooting prospect I've ever seen. The right. worst shooting form I have ever seen. And this year, you know, looked very comfortable with his reworked shot um, that he basically spent his entire transfer year working on. And I think that there's a capability that he is going to have kind of like a Kawhi Leonard-esque growth as a shooter. Um, and, and turn into maybe a guy that you can even rely on to shoot on a little bit of volume at the NBA level, particularly out of pick and pops and, and out of the corners. Um, so, I mean, if you're getting that and on the defensive end, you're getting a guy who 
is athletic enough and has good enough timing and decision-making to be a rim protector that you can play at the four on offense, that's hugely valuable, especially if you're playing him next to like a spacing big. He's one of the guys that I think would be a perfect fit for my team, the Cleveland Cavaliers, at five because he his fit with Kevin Love is almost seamless um, in terms of skill set. So like he's going to be a very valuable player, if, especially if he can get into that type of context with a shooting big around him. Absolutely. I'm with you 100% on there. We're agreeing a lot. I like that. I'm chatting with Illegal Screens on Twitter, at Illegal Screens. Make sure you're following him on Twitter, at Illegal Screens. The The real name is Trevor Magnotti. He does a great job covering the NBA draft. For the step back, make sure you're checking out all his draft stuff. In the lead up to June 20th's festivities, also a quick reminder of our draft party that we're doing at the Bluff Memphis with I Love Memphis blog and 92.9 FM ESPN in Memphis. I will be in the city for the party. I'll be covering the draft for GBB. Make sure you're coming out. Drink specials, giveaways, all that fun stuff at the draft party. Make sure you're coming out to the Bluff Memphis on June 20th. The festivities get underway at 7 o'clock. My next tier here is kind of a shrug. And the reason it's a shrug isn't because I don't think they're good players. It's because I don't think it necessarily matters which one you take. Now, it probably matters to them in terms of money and fit, market, all those things. But to me, the next four guys are kind of, there's two guards and there's two wings that are essentially, depending on what you need, I think all of them are fine. Uh, I have DeAndre Hunter, fifth from UVA. I have Jarrett Culver, sixth from Texas Tech. I have Darius Garland, seventh from Vanderbilt, and then UNC's Kobe White, eighth. So I, you have two guards, like I said. You have two wings. I think they all give you different ceilings. I think Culver probably has a higher ceiling than Hunter. Garland probably has a higher ceiling than White. I think White and Hunter are probably better immediate NBA players. But all four of them, I'm not necessarily sure you can go wrong taking. Do you disagree with that or agree with that? Um, I think you're, I think you're three out of four. Correct. I have significant reservations about Darius Garland because he is not the level of playmaker that he needs to be, um, to be a starting caliber point guard at the NBA level. I think that he kind of fits more in kind of like the Wu Williams bench gunner mold. And those guys, unless you are Wu Williams, don't really hit as, as often as you want. Um, so I, if I was a Lakers fan, I would have, some significant reservations about what they may be doing at the, at the number four pick. But I think that the rest of these guys definitely have some good uh, uh, fits for a lot of different teams. I think that Culver and Hunter are definitely, if you want to wing at the top of the draft, you can't really go wrong with either. Um, both are going to be really good defenders. Um, both have very good court vision. Um, Culver's even to the point that I think he can become a primary creator. They're both limited ball handlers, but I think that there's enough there as finishers and uh, spot-up shooters that these guys are both going to be at the baseline, competent 3 and D wings at the NBA level. And every team needs as many of those guys as you can get. Um, and then as for Kobe White, he, I think, is the safest option of the point guards, which is why I have him ranked the highest of them. Um, and I think that I think that you're right, that he's going to be the guy that he's not a super flashy. He's not a guy who is going to really be like a game changer for your team. But I think that he is going to provide competent point guard play on both ends of the floor. And I think that that's valuable. I think that he's a guy that's going to kind of lock in as like, the 12th or 13th best point guard in the league, which is fine. And maybe not a guy that you want to draft in the top five, but 
is good for what this draft class is. Um, when you look at kind of the safety of, of these different prospects, I think that he definitely has the easiest avenue to becoming a starter level player. And that's something I care about a lot. He's to me, like if Mike Conley and Malcolm Brogdon had a baby is kind of how I view Kobe White. And that's probably not a fair comparison or a correct comparison in terms of style of play. White's pretty explosive in his own right, at least off the dribble. But in terms of the way I see him fitting on a roster, it'll be seamless. He can go. He can play either guard position. I think he's a good, solid combo guard. I like Kobe White a lot. And like I, I, I could be talked into putting him in front of Garland. I just think Garland has a higher ceiling, like I said. But you're right. He, he definitely has some, uh, some definite concerns in terms of maybe making him out to be better than he actually is. Speaking of that type of concern, my next tier is, oh, my God, please don't put him on my team. And it's two players in particular, Cam Reddish and Bol Bol, and especially Cam Reddish. This this tier is named after Cam Reddish because he is so physically gifted. Everything's so easy, so fluid for him, and yet he struggled so immensely. I, I see a lot of Jeff Green in him, and, and I don't know how long you've been following me over at grizzlybearblues.com. I can't do that again. I can't do Jeff Green again. It, it almost broke me the last time. I get a lot of Jeff Green from Cam Reddish. Maybe I'm wrong for that. Maybe you can talk me out of it. And then Bowl Bowl is a similar concept. I like him better than Cam Reddish in theory, not necessarily for the Grizzlies, but I think that there's at least more reason to think he's going to be a pretty competent NBA player. He makes a lot of sense as a modern NBA center, uh, and especially in terms of his ability to shoot on the perimeter. So this tier is named for cam reddish in particular but both of these guys have red flags to me in terms of whether it's mental makeup in the case of reddish obviously bowl coming off of the foot injury there's reasons for concern here do you agree can you talk me off the ledge when it comes to these two no you're definitely you're definitely right and i'm i'm right there with you on the jeff green comparison i mean he was arguably the second best player on that finals team last year so that was great that was a lot of fun and really entertaining and definitely made me feel good as a Cavs fan um, <laughs> but uh, I I think that Reddish he's not so much like I don't think that's a perfect comparison for him but I think it is valuable in kind of the idea of this is a guy who's always going to be thought of higher than the sum of his parts is um and I, and I think that he is a guy who you really, both of these guys, honestly, you kind of have to reinvent what you imagine them to be because at the baseline, people are thinking that Reddish is kind of like this guy who is going to be a potential number one or number two offensive hub for your team and then also provide some defensive value. And Bull is going to be this like legendary rim protector, just like his dad was. But in reality, I think you have to kind of reconfigure what your expectations are for them. Reddish is not going to be a guy who's going to be able to score effectively and efficiently off the dribble in the NBA. He was one of the worst finishers in college basketball that we have seen in the last decade. Um, and the other guys in his class, so he shot like 39% on two point, uh, two point shots in college. The only other players that we've been, or that did that and made the NBA are Fred Van Vliet and Spencer Dinwiddie. And neither of those guys is six, eight. So that's very concerning for Reddish's health as a primary creator, because even before you get into his lack of uh, playmaking ability and his uh, tunnel vision, like you have to be able to finish to be able to be that type of guy. You just have to. And right now, I don't think that he's going to be a guy that's going to be able to.
Um, but I think that he does still have some value as a guy who can potentially shoot well on volume um, and a guy who has legitimate switchability on the defensive end. I think that there is a path to Reddish being an all-defense type defender, but you have to get him to buy in to be able to get there. Um, so he's a guy that I think if he realizes what his strengths are and if his team puts him in a situation to succeed, I think that he could still become one of the better players in this draft. But I think the likelihood of him recognizing that and his team recognizing that is going to be a little bit lower than what it should be. Meanwhile, for Bull, I think you almost you have to treat him like he's a seven foot three wing player because he's a guy who is probably one of the best shooters in the draft. Honestly, I would go that far. Um, and when you add in that he's able to handle a little bit and has a really good touch off the dribble, that's that's really exciting for him on the offensive end. But defensively, he is going to be a little bit of a negative outside of block shots because he does not put himself in positions to succeed. And when you throw in the uh, foot injury and the potential that he's not going to be able to build up enough strength to be able to handle NBA centers, I think that he loses a lot of value as you, like your pr- traditional rim protector. But that being said, I think that he can still provide value if he gets on a team that recognizes his offensive gifts and is able to maybe pair him with a traditional rim protector type um or maybe even like a like I think he'd be perfect on Boston because putting him with Al Horford would be brilliant on the defensive end Horford's the exact type of guy who's going to be able to cover for the mistakes the Bulls going to make um I I think that both of these guys have avenues to being good but they're small avenues that are really going to depend on where they get drafted we're finishing up here with the terrific Trevor Magnotti known as at illegal screens on Twitter. Make sure you're following him there. If you don't already do so in the lead up to the NBA draft and even beyond that, he's a great follow. He covers the draft for the step back again. That's at illegal screens. Uh, I'll get you out of here on this and thank you for your time. Uh, I have four names to finish out my lottery. I have Jackson Hayes of Texas. I've got, uh, and I always butcher this Seku uh, do 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 homeboya. Uh, I probably messed that up bad. We'll just go with Seku uh, of France, uh, international prospect. Bruno Fernando of Maryland. I like him. You kind of talked about Bull struggling with his frame as an NBA setter. I don't think that'll be a problem with Bruno. And then Grant Williams of Tennessee as my fourteenth. Uh, how do you feel about the rest of that lottery? Do you think there's somebody I'm leaving out? Is there anybody that shouldn't be there? Uh, that's how I close out my top or my 11 through 14 on my big board. I think that's pretty reasonable for the most part. I really like Jackson Hayes. I think that he's going to be a guy that's going to take a few years to become a playable NBA player, but his ceiling is going to be as, as like your traditional kind of dive man type. Who's a, who's a really solid rim protector. I don't think you can go wrong with the type of player he is. Um, I think that Grant Williams is fantastic. I have him at the top, at the end of my top 10. He's just going to be a really solid player who's going to be able to fit a lot of different roles in the NBA. And I think it's going to be a really fantastic defensive player um, for some team. And honestly, probably some team in the twenties in the playoffs or in the playoff range. And he's going to be an instant contributor and we're going to wonder what the hell happened. Um, I think that outside of that, I'm less high on Bruno Fernando because I think mostly that he, his, time to be an effective NBA player was probably 15 years ago. Like if this was the 2002 (laughs) draft, 
Bruno Fernando is a top five pick. Um, and I, I think that he is a guy that just has a little bit of an antiquated skill set. And we've seen kind of the cap of what that player is going to be able to become. Andre Drummond's a really good player. Andre Drummond is also an extremely limited player in the modern NBA. Um, so I, I wouldn't put him quite that high. Um, the other guys who are in my my top 14 that you missed are Romeo Langford um, out of Indiana, who I think is going to be a really good finisher from the shooting guard position and is going to be, I think, an effective offensive weapon at the two guard that can kind of play off ball and, and provide some ball handling value on bench units. And then PJ Washington, I really love because he is, I think, like a Rudy Gay type where he's going to be able to leverage his skills at the power forward position functionally as like a big three um, because of his versatility, because of his handling ability and because of his foot or his quickness on the defensive end. I think that he's a guy that can play three or small ball four and be really effective at both. And I think that that type is really valuable personally. So I I would put those guys up there um, along with Hayes, along with Williams. And I think that, you know, for as much as this draft is kind of getting underso- or undersold talent-wise, I think there are a few guys who are going to be pretty solid um, out of this group. Two or three are going to hit and be really exciting players in the NBA. I'll get you out of here on this, Trevor. In every draft, it happens. There's somebody that falls into the second round, or maybe it's just someone who winds up getting taken there, and they turn out to be a terrific player. Nikola Jokic, uh, Malcolm Brogdon, Draymond Green. It it seems like it happens almost every year. Who is somebody that's on your uh, radar that could be taken, maybe picks 31 through 40, that could wind up being a pretty special player in their own right in that second round? Well, if we're going off of uh, Jonathan Givoni's latest mock draft, apparently that's Grant Williams, um, who's, <laughs> listed, uh, who's listed 32nd on their board. But I'm not going to say him because I don't think there's any way that he falls into the second round. I think if you're looking at, at guys who are potentially valuable NBA players who could fall that far, I think you got to look at Matisse Thibel of Washington, a guy who is an extremely limited offensive player, but is legitimately the best havoc-causing wing that we have ever seen at the college level. He His steal and block rates are comical, um, like outpacing Marcus Smart in college in terms of both of those things, which is absurd. He is one of the best off-ball and team defenders in not just this draft class, but of the last few drafts. And I think that he's going to make some team really, really happy taking him probably in like the 30 to 35 range in this draft. If he slips past, um, I think like the twenties, I think he's going to kind of get into a little bit of a free fall. Um, so I would, I would pick him just because I think that there's a chance that he goes into the second round and he's going to look like DeAnthony Melton last year, where he's going to fall. A lot of people are going to really wonder why, and then he's going to come out and just be gangbusters on the defensive end and really make a lot of teams look silly. Trevor Magnotti, thank you so much for your time. It is much appreciated. We'll definitely have you back on down the road. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. Thank you to Trevor Magnotti. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We'll be back next week to talk NBA Finals. We'll talk about the draft. Hopefully the Grizzlies coaching situation is a little bit more settled. 
Lots of good content over at grizzlybearblues.com. Continue to make us one of your main places that you get all Grizzlies-related content. Make sure you're subscribing on Stitcher, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, and on Spotify. Any way that you can get a podcast, you can get GBB Live, the core for anything on the Grizzly Bear Blues Podcast Network. So again, for Trevor, thank you so much for listening. I am GBB Site Manager and host of this program, Joe Molinax, saying grind forth, Grizz Nation. This is Grizzly Bear Blues Live. We all need the right tools for success. A painter needs their perfect brushes, and a climber needs to be able to rely on their harness. And for your work, you need to stay connected. With Slack, teams can help you work better. Slack is a productivity platform that connects all your team members together instantly. It's built to help your team with a host of features like huddles for quick check-ins and clips for recording and sharing video. Slack also makes it easy to search and find the right information you need. You can even integrate the apps you use in your normal workflow, like your calendar or product management tools, so you stay focused on the work that matters and get more done. Learn more at slack.com slash productivity.